You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. Welcome to Summit. Uh, my name is Lucas Backman. Um, I'm, uh, I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, and as Ovi said, we are uh, going through the book of James. Uh, and uh, we just wrapped up uh, James 3, uh, which is... Yeah, well, it's a lot of fun, right? And, uh, and, and we're going through uh, these, uh, these passages in our D groups on Thursday nights. Uh, so if you guys haven't been coming out to those, uh, we, uh, we tend to dig deeper into the passage. Um, and we also kind of explore other passages as well. So again, those are on Thursday nights. Um, and uh, today, what we're, we're actually going to start chapter four. Uh, and we actually go through most of the, most of the chapter today. Um, <clears throat> And I'll be, uh, I'll be super honest with you. Um, this passage was, it's complicated. Um, I, it just, uh, just the way um, when I was going through kind of the translation work, man, this, this passage can really just kind of pan out like 40 different ways, right? Uh, and it, you, I could just preach this in so many different directions. And, and um, so I just... I'm, I'm giving you that information so that you just bear with me. If, if there is stuff that kind of comes across as, wait, you didn't talk about this, or, well, what about this? Or, but could it have been this way? Um, the answer is probably, right? It, it really could have been. Um, but uh, unfortunately, we only have, what, like 40 minutes. So uh, I really did have to whittle this down to, uh, to something um, that, uh, that was uh, kind of easy to understand and quick. Uh, also, I'm not interested in turning this into kind of an academic lesson, right? Um, so uh, just uh, as a disclaimer, I just wanted to, to kind of put that out there and, uh, and just let everyone know. Now, if you do have questions, um, that's why I talked about D groups. Show up to D groups, and then we can dig into stuff, right? Um, so uh, as questions come up, uh, write them down, show up to D groups, let's talk about it, or you can just hang out after church and we can talk about it then uh, as well. So um, before we, uh, we actually read through, uh, through this chapter, um, or at least this section, um, as always, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm kind of a sucker for context, right? So I, I love kind of building out context, making sure that we know where we've come from so that we know where we're going, uh, and, uh, and kind of making sure the passage stays within its context, and we're not lifting it out of the context and then doing something with it that's not natural to it. So... Uh, what, uh, what James has kind of gone through up until this point uh, is he's given a lot of different, uh, um, I guess, just uh, measures in which we can actually measure our spiritual walk and measure our, uh, our faith in Christ. Uh, we've talked about uh, a lot of different things, but, uh, but last week specifically, uh, we talked about this concept of wisdom, right? This wisdom that comes from above and not the wisdom of the world. Rejecting the wisdom of the world, but embracing uh, the wisdom of Christ. And, uh, and a lot of times that can be harder than it sounds, right? And, and Flo did a great job in explaining and kind of ending the, the whole idea with uh, really the, the wisdom of the gospel is foolishness to the world, right? And, and it should be foolishness to the world. And that's, that's how, because that's how God chose to reveal it, right? He chose to reveal himself. He chose the wisdom of the world uh, to confound uh, the wise. So it was, it was actually the foolishness of God that actually confounds the wise. And this is how uh, we actually know our Christ. And what I'd like to do is just read the last, um, the last bit of chapter three, and then we'll just go ahead and read uh, right into our section today. Uh, and then after that, we'll go ahead and pray. So James three thirteen through 18. 
It says, who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show his good behavior, um, his deeds in in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes, from, comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic, from where jealousy and selfish ambition exists. There is disorder in every evil thing, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then we'll start our section today, which is four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1. But what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. And do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. And there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But to who are you judging your neighbor? All right, let's pray. Dear God, I just, uh, I just thank you for another opportunity for us to get together and, um, and just dig into your word. And I ask that you just, you just open our hearts and open our minds to, uh, to your truth and what you have for us. And uh, I ask that you just you give us humble hearts to, uh, to listen to, um, to some of the correction uh, that's given in this passage. Um, and also just... Uh, just be gracious to us as we as we kind of struggle through um, through what you're what you're communicating, and we love you and uh, and just thank you for everything that you've given to us and and again, I just uh, I just ask that you you just give us grace and, and speak to your people today. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> I normally. Um, I like giving kind of three points, right? It's easy to understand and, uh, and it, it kind of breaks down most passages pretty well. Um, but uh, today I have, uh, I have six points for you guys, okay? But don't worry, uh, they're kind of work in tandem, uh, sort of. So we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get into that. So 
Uh, as always, I like to kind of spoil my points. Uh, I don't like to surprise anyone. Like, let's just get it all out there. Um, so, uh, like I said, I have six points, but there's, uh, they're kind of categorized in two different sections, uh, and they should be on the screen. And uh, really what, uh, what James is kind of breaking down here uh, is he's contrasting a, a, a prideful heart or a prideful life and a, and a humble um, life. And, uh, and there's, there's kind of these major themes that kind of pop out. And, um, and so pride uh, produces quarrels in our lives. Pride produces enemies of God. And pride produces condemning judges. However, uh, looking at the opposite, humility produces grace in our lives. It produces friends with God. And it produces doers of God's law. And so these, these two concepts are contrasted throughout this passage, and, um, and some are contrasted a little bit more uh, clearly and others uh, less so. And so we're going to go through and we're just going to kind of bring those out uh, as we go throughout uh, this passage. So what I'd like to do is just go back to, uh, to the first section, so uh, James 4, 1 through uh, 3. And it says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not your pleasures that wage war in your body parts? Do not lust and do not ha- you lust and do not have, and so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. Now this passage is uh, is pretty straightforward. It doesn't require a ton uh, to break down. Um, however, uh, there is uh, there is some uh, diff- uh, there's kind of variations uh, within this passage. It really does beg this question: Is uh, is James really just talking about uh, you as an individual, or is he talking about um, body parts, like members of the body, members of the church? Uh, and what makes this complicated is that James actually uses uh, kind of members in both contexts, right? So if we go just within the book, uh, we actually find both of those uh, both of those options available to us. Um, and, uh, and it does change the meaning a little bit, but I don't think it changes it enough uh, to where we need to back up or change anything. And so what I really want us to focus on is that this is the source of conflict. Now, is the conflict within you? Is the conflict, are you warring with yourself? Are you quarreling with yourself? Do you have conflicts within you, right? Do you commit murder within yourself, right? Do you fight and quarrel within yourself, right? Do you, do you see how this, this could be different? Because this foot could be very, very individualistic. However, the outcropping of this is that if this is talking about the church, uh, then this adds a a new meaning to it, a new context. This is how uh, we shouldn't behave with each other. Are there quarrels among us? Are are we waging war on ourselves? Do we commit murder or have hate toward each other? You see how this this is really kind of of brings out a different, uh, different layer to this. And in my personal opinion, I really feel like James has, uh, has used that language, the body parts or members, uh, intentionally because it could be both, couldn't it? And I, I do feel like this was ambiguous for a reason because uh, this, this really could apply to both situations. And I think both situations are deserving of our attention. 
And as we go through this, uh, what we need to understand is, again, what he just got done talking about in, in, at the end of chapter three, where he talks about wisdom from above, where he talks about uh, wisdom that comes from above. It is peace-loving, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy, good fruits, impartial, free of hypocrisy. Right? Do, do you see how this is, is so obviously contrasted with the wisdom of the world, Right? It's so obviously contrasted with how uh, people are treating each other in this, in this first section. These people, uh, they lust and they do not have, and that's why they commit murder, right? They're, they're envious and they cannot obtain, and that's why they fight and they quarrel. And yet, if we have the wisdom from above, uh, we, we are to be peace-loving. We are to be gentle. And I think what, what, what James is really drawing out, and we'll see this more clearly as he builds his argument, but what he's drawing out is, when we have uh, the, the wisdom of the world, what does the wisdom of the world tell us? Well, the wisdom of the world tells us that we need to have something. We need to have more power. We need to have something. There is something in this world that we're missing and we need it to medicate whatever is ailing us. And so it's, it's really this, this kind of, this concept of, it's as if you have a vitamin deficiency and the world has something that's going to satiate it. And that's, that's the wisdom of the world is that we need to find something in this world that's going to satisfy our lusts or it's going to satisfy our envy, right? And that's why we lust, that's why we envy is because we cannot obtain or we cannot have. And that produces quarrels, that produces fights among us and in us is this lust for something outside, something external, something in this world. And that's what the, the wisdom of the world teaches us. And so what James is really highlighting here is this, is this is almost a litmus test of, do you have the wisdom from above or do you have the wisdom from above or wisdom from above or wisdom from the world? If we have wisdom from the world, then we should expect quarrels among us. We should expect infighting. We should expect fighting within us. We should expect restlessness. And he goes on to say, and this, this passage gets a lot of attention, where it says, you do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. This really kind of brings up this whole question of prayer, right? Um, and, uh, and like I said, this is, this is a really big topic and, and we could really kind of spin off into the weeds here, right? Uh, but the, the fact of the matter is James doesn't allocate a lot of time on this. So I, I feel like it would be inappropriate for us to as well. However, I do want to kind of address uh, what is being talked about. So a lot of times people will read this or they come to this conclusion and this is very natural for us. And this comes from other passages as well, but it's almost this feeling of, okay, I'm gonna ask God for something. And if it doesn't come true, maybe I didn't have faith, right? Maybe I just needed to faith harder or something, right? Um, or uh, maybe he didn't give it to me because uh, I just had the wrong motives, right? But then we, we really start warring with ourselves. And now you see the conflict where it's like, no, no, I, I want good things. I want this for, for the kingdom of God. I, I want to do this ministry. I, I want to do this for the kingdom of God. That's good motives. Why wouldn't he answer this prayer? Why wouldn't he give me what I want? I have good motives. And that just, that starts this conflict in us, doesn't it? It's like, why? Why wouldn't he answer this prayer? Why wouldn't he give me what I ask for when I have good motives? 
And I think what James is getting at is what if it runs deeper than that? What if it runs deeper than just what you want, but what if it runs deeper in that you think that you have to be the mechanism in which God enacts his kingdom? And how often do we go about with this, with this perspective of ministry where it's, I have to be the one that shares the gospel with this person, or I have to be the one that leads this ministry, or I have to be the one that X, Y, and Z. But God doesn't need us to do what he needs to do, right? God does what he wants, right? And he chooses to use us sometimes, right? And this, this, this generates so much conflict in us because it's like, no, I, I want to do this. And what if God says, I want to do it too, just not with you, right? What if God wants to use you for something else? And that would be perfectly okay, wouldn't it? And yet it still caused conflict and strife and quarreling within ourselves, and that, I think that's what, what James is, is really kind of drawing out here is that you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. And you really have to ask yourself, what are your pleasures? They might just be a little off, right? They might just be a little oriented toward us. But if they are, they're still wrong. And so e- even the good things in this world, even the things that we, we feel like are good motivations, right? We really need to ask ourselves, when God doesn't give us what we want, we have to be comfortable and we have to resolve this fact where it's, he didn't give this to us and that should be okay. And that can be really hard sometimes, especially when we have people that are sick, right? People that we love, that we want to get better or lost souls that we want to reach, right? That gets really hard, doesn't it? And so again, our, our motives can be good, but, but we have to have faith that God will, he will execute his kingdom. He will bring about his kingdom. He will bring about his will in the way that he sees fit. And your motive, your pleasure in acting that out is not necessarily always his pleasure. We need to have faith that he'll take care of that and we don't need to. We'll see that theme uh, pop up quite a bit. So, uh, and, that's, uh, and that's that first point, uh, is that pride produces quarrels in our lives. And we'll get to the humility section um, a little bit later. But uh, we'll move on to the next section of our passage. Uh, and this, uh, this next section uh, highlights uh, two. So um, this one highlights uh, pride produces enemies of God, but humility produces friends with God. So we'll go ahead and, uh, and just read that section or at least part of it. Uh, you adulteresses. So um, in, um, in the Greek, it is uh, a little interesting. There's, uh, there's something called evocative, right? Uh, which is actually just, it's a different way to just like call someone a name, right? Um, so like dad or mom or adulteresses, right? And that's, that's exactly what he's doing here. It's, it's their name. It's almost as if he's, he's calling them by name, adulteresses. Uh, and in the Greek, that's exactly, it's adulteresses, exclamation point. Uh, there is no you. <laughs> adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scriptures say, uh, says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us, but he gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, 
but he gives grace to the humble. Now, I just want to stop there and, and, and unpack that first section, and then we'll, we'll go on to, uh, to the rest of the section because it, it keeps going. But, uh, but here, uh, this is where we're actually going to back up a little bit. And this is where we actually find this idea that humility produces grace in our lives. And in, in verse 6, uh, James talks about how, but he gives us a greater grace. This idea has already been communicated in James where he talks about how, um, how mercy is greater than justice. And how, how could that be? And that's because mercy has to trump justice, Right? or else it wouldn't be mercy, right? And, and, and James is actually kind of tying that same idea or that same concept into this, uh, is that we have this spirit in us that, that he, is, he jealously desires, uh, and yet we're living like the world, yet we have worldly wisdom, yet we are lusting, and yet we are uh, having quarrels uh, and killing each other um, or committing murder. Uh, we're doing all these things, and yet the spirit is in us. That can only mean one thing is that we're friends with the world. That can only mean one thing is that we're enemies of God. This is terrible news, right? He says, yet there is a greater grace. He gives us a greater grace. And then that's when he quotes the Psalm and he says, God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I really want to highlight that because uh, James, is, he's, he's put this, uh, this quote right in the middle. And we'll talk about how this, this could be kind of his main point in the entire section. Is that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the, to the humble. And what, what, what pride produces, what it, what it brings out in us is it produces quarrels. It produces conflict. It produces all this animity. It produces struggle and restlessness within us and within our midst and within our relationships. And yet, what does humility produce? Well, humility produces grace. That's not to say that we produce grace by humbling ourselves. No, no, no. It's through our humbling ourselves that God then gives us grace. The grace always comes from God. It never comes from us but it always comes from God. But what the humility produces, what it affords us, what it, the opportunity that opens up is it opens up the opportunity for grace. And it gives us this grace, or God gives us that grace through humility. And what's interesting about this quote is that uh, we, we look at these as kind of two opposing things. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble, Right? And those are two very contrasted things and they, they, they aren't necessarily mutually exclusive though. Because what if in God opposing the proud, he humbles you and it's through your humbling, it's through God opposing you, it's through your humility and your humiliation in being opposed is then the mechanism in which God gives us grace. So yeah, these two things, they are, they are exclusive, but they are also, they can be tied together. And that's an important concept, and we'll, we'll dig into that a little bit later. But uh, this, this is this important thing where God does, he opposes the proud, but then he gives grace to the humble. And so when we do find ourselves quarreling in ourselves, or we find ourselves quarreling among us, we do have to ask ourselves, where is the humility? And where can we be humbling ourselves? And again, we'll talk about that at length in a little bit. So, Back to, uh, to the original point where pride produces enemies of God, uh, but humility produces f- 
friends with God. Um, I uh, would like to um, just keep reading and then we'll kind of back up and talk about this whole section uh, as a whole. Submit therefore to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter turn into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. This, um, this section is, uh, is, is hard to grapple with, right? It could seem or it could come across as though James is telling us uh, that we just need to be wildly depressed all the time, right? And don't worry, God will make you feel better right? Like that's not, that's not what he's getting at. But uh, so often I think we can read it that way where it's turn your laughter and turn your joy into mourning and gloom. You're just like, but I'm happy, right? I'm, I'm, I'm having a good time. I'm enjoying life. And, and does, wouldn't God want me to do this, right? And I think the reason why we, we kind of get lost in that or, or we kind of get in our feelings about it it's because we, we do want to enjoy life, right? And this kind of goes back to the first section where it's ask yourself where your pleasures are, right? Of course, this isn't talking about, yeah, you just need to be wildly depressed all the time. Um, I mean, who, <laughs> evangelism would be particularly difficult if we just always walked around gloomy and weeping and mourning and we're just walking up to someone with like tears in our eyes. We're just like, can I tell you about Jesus? Right, like this, there, there has to be something more to what's going on. And that's exactly what's going on here is he's talking about a very specific type of crowd. He's talking to a very specific audience. And it's this audience that's struggling with the wisdom of the world or the wisdom uh, of God. They're struggling with this, with this conflict of, of what this, um, this concept of, well, he calls them adulteresses. Where, where do you find your hostility? Do you find hostility with the world? Or do you find hostility to God? If you're finding hostility with God, or if you're finding friendship with the world, then maybe you should be gloomy about that. Maybe you should find this as an opportunity to humble yourself. And James even goes on and he says, therefore, whoever is a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Uh, literally, this, this talks about how uh, if you find yourself, if you're, uh, if you're kind of flirting or uh, have this philia or this brotherly love with the world, if you're, if you're kind of chummy with the world, uh, this makes himself or he appoints himself as an enemy of God. This is something that is self-inflicted, self-induced. And I think this really gives a lot of clarity to what he was talking about before, where uh, what, what's the source of all these quarrels? Well, it's your pleasures. Pleasure for what? Pleasure for things of this world. Pleasure for this worldly wisdom. And that's, that's where this, this point kind of drops right in the middle. And it, this may be the, the most important point in this passage is that if we find ourselves friends of this world, if we find ourselves longing after this world, jealously envying this world, then we need to ask ourselves, where does that put our relationship with God? Because that only could mean one thing, is that that makes us enemies of God. And James even talks about, do you, do you think that the scriptures say with no purpose? Do you think it just, it just says this flippantly? You think it was just said in vain? 
Now, there is a lot of discussion um, because uh, a lot of Bibles, they put a quotation right here where it says, he jealously desires a spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. Um, like that's the quote. Um, others say, because that, uh, that's not quoted anywhere in the Old or New Testament. So uh, some scholars argue that's not the quote. He's referring into the future. He's referring to the God as opposed to the proud, uh, but gives grace to the, to the humble. So this, uh, this section may be kind of a break or, uh, or James is actually kind of giving a small commentary on the passage that he's just about to quote. So he talks about the scriptures. They don't say this in vain, right? They're not just making this up. It wasn't just empty words. And then he gives this little commentary where he says, he jealously desires the spirit whom he has made to dwell in us. Now, this is also uh, kind of hotly debated because it's not entirely clear uh, on what this spirit is. Is this the Holy Spirit uh, or is this just kind of our, uh, our humanity, the spirit that, uh, the, the, the nephesh that God breathed into Adam, right? And this is the spirit uh, that God has given to us. And it really could read both ways. And, and I just wanna kind of pitch this to you guys. I'll, I'll let you come to your own conclusions, but uh, it says he jealously desires the spirit. Is that the Holy Spirit in us or is it the human spirit that he has given to us? The thing that makes us or helps uh, us image God. This spirit, he, he jealously desires it whom he has made to dwell in us. You see how this really could be the Holy Spirit or this could be just our normal, our normal spirit, but the implication really doesn't change, does it? Even if we have this Holy Spirit in us, but we're living like the world, that's a problem. But even if, if God has just given us this human spirit and we are now mangling it and, and just wrap, wrapping it around the world and shaping it into the image of the world when it should be reflecting the image of God, that's a problem, isn't it? You see how the, the implication of this doesn't really matter, uh, but uh, it is important in that what, what James is highlighting here is that uh, there is something about you that God jealously desires. There's something about you that God wants. And so we need to ask ourselves, do we find this philia? Do we find this familiar love? Do we find this friendliness with the world? And I think all of us to some degree could say, yeah, of course. And that's terrible news. And we, we already talked about this, but, and that's immediately why James says, but he gives a greater grace. He gives us this mercy. He gives us this good gift. And that's where he quotes, therefore it says God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives us this opportunity to find ourselves as friends to God. But in order to do this, we have to reject the things of this world. In order to do this, we need to uh, find ourselves enemies of the world. And again, that, we don't have to take that so far. We don't have to go out and just start screaming at people either, right? So this, what, what this uh, really reflects is that we now image God and we shine brighter in a dark world. And so in our humbling ourselves or being humbled, God then gives us grace. And then James gives us some, uh, some key factors to look out for. 
So in the first section, he tells us key factors to look out for if we find ourselves friends of the world, if we find ourselves immersed in worldly wisdom. And now this section, he tells us these are what to look out for, um, or this is how we actually generate this humility in our lives. And he goes on and says, therefore submit to God, but resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and he will exalt you. Now, what's, uh, what's interesting about how this entire section that we've covered so far is, uh, is a bit structured. Um, there's, uh, there's kind of a, a Hebrew uh, structure. It's something known as chiasm. Uh, where there's kind of a structure built here and then a structure on the other side. And then there's something in the middle just stands alone. And the structure in the middle that stands alone, the thing that's communicated in the middle, that's, that's actually the main point. And what's interesting is, uh, and I kind of uh, wrote this out for you guys, so it should be on the screen. Uh, in, uh, in four, uh, two through three, uh, he actually gives uh, kind of uh, 10 different verbs uh, that, uh, that, are, that are spelled out exactly like this. So uh, you lust, you do not have, you kill, you covet, you are unable to obtain, you fight, you quarrel, you ask, you do not receive, you may spend on your pleasures. You see how, how, how inward focused this is. But then at the very end, uh, in, the, in, the last, in that last section, so seven through 10, he gives uh, these other verbs, a different kind of verb, these imperatives, something that you must do. So you could almost put a you must in front of all these but I didn't have space in the slide to do that. So just imagine you must in front of this. So you must subject yourself. You must resist the devil. You must draw near to God. You must cleanse yourself. You must purify yourself. You must grieve. You must mourn. You must weep. You must turn laughter and joy into mourning and gloom. You must humble yourself. You see how, how these two things are so, uh, so radically contrasted. One is just so obviously uh, wrapped around your, your lusts or the things that you want to lay hold of. And yet the other one is all about doing something that, that, that makes yourself small. And that, that's so hard for us, right? It's so hard to, uh, to look at these things, subject yourselves, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse yourself, purify yourself, grieve, mourn, weep. Turn, humble yourself. These, these things are imperatives, they're commands. It's a you must statement. And yet we read lists like this and, and it's just so impossible for us to do. And yet this, this is the greater grace. Because again, in the chiastic structure, we have these two ideas, these two, ten, or these two sets of 10 verbs. And then right in the middle, what's in the middle? It's God opposed God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. This is it. This is the main point. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so when we look at these things, we, we look at this other list and we say, God, how can we do this? How do we get here? How do we find ourselves friends uh, with God and enemies of the world? How do we find, how do we eliminate this friendship with this world? How do we eliminate this worldly wisdom that we find ourselves so wrapped in? And the answer is God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That's the answer. 
And often we find ourselves, well, how do we humble? How do we do, our, how do, we do this, right? What if we just asked? Now we find ourselves back at the beginning where it says, you, at, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he also says, uh, and you ask and you don't receive because you ask in wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. <laughs> What's pleasurable about being humbled? You see how we can't screw that one up. <laughs> and, and so when we find ourselves lacking in humility, uh, we just simply need to ask. We need, well, we first need to ask ourselves, so if we find ourselves lacking in humility, it might be because you're not asking for humility. And if we do find ourselves asking for humility, we really do need to just trust and have faith that God is going to answer that prayer. And sometimes that's less painless than other times, right? But again, we're, we're back to that, that first point that I talked about where it's, what if we want something? What if we have really good motives? What if we want this ministry? What if we want to do this good work for God? And he doesn't answer that prayer. And so what we need to resolve in our minds is that we need to have faith that God is going to execute the good things that he wants to execute. And what if humility is that good thing in you that he wants to execute? He'll get you there. One way or another, he'll get you there. But the focus is that we need to ask because everything is on the line here. We need to beg God for humility. We need to beg God to give us this grace. We need to beg God, please oppose the proud. Humble me so that I can be friends with God, so that I can eliminate this friendship with the world. And that can be terrifying because this idea of being humbled, this idea of being humiliated or brought low, or this, this idea of living a life of grief and mourning and weeping and uh, turning laughter um, and into mourning and joy into gloom, that life sounds miserable, doesn't it? And I think this is what James is contrasting here is what if we just had faith to accept that God was going to use that and produce something good in us? What if we trusted that, yes, life might look like that from time to time, but we just had faith and we trusted that he will exalt you. He will bring you back. He will lift you up. In worst case scenario, he doesn't do it in this life. But we have a better life to look forward to. So we'll move on to, uh, to our last point. And, uh, and this last point says, pride produces condemning judges, but humility produces doers of God's law. It says, do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. For the one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you judging your neighbor? Now this gets thrown around a lot, right? Uh, if, you just, uh, if you just tell someone like, hey, the Bible says this is sin, and it's just like, well, you can't judge me, right? So touche, 
right? It, and, this, and this is often thrown around where it's, uh, well, you can't judge one another, right? Uh, and so therefore you can never tell someone that they're wrong about something. That's not what James is talking about here. And it's pretty obvious, again, given the context. Uh, but what James is saying here is that uh, this concept of judge is actually someone that actually condemns or holds over or lords over uh, their ability to judge, right? So what, what James is really getting at is uh, you d- don't speak, and this also could be translated as, uh, as speaking evil, right? Um, so don't speak against or don't speak evil uh, to one another for the one who speaks evil uh, against his brother or uh, sister um, or judges his brother or sister. So uh, what James is doing here is he's actually drawing a comparison to, uh, between these things. So speaking evil or speaking against um, or this could also be a slander or a false witness. Uh, if you do that, you, uh, that's equating or equal to actually judging someone or uh, condemning them, passing down judgment. And, uh, and then James goes on and says, uh, speak, um, yeah, do not speak against a brother or sister or judge his brother or sister, uh, sister. If you do this, you speak against the law and you judge the law. And so how, how is, it's kind of a, a, a jump, right? There's an intellectual jump there that, that James is making uh, that, uh, that might be hard for us to make. And so what we need to understand is, uh, is from the Jewish perspective, uh, who gives the law? Well, it was God, right? It wasn't Moses, it was God, right? Moses communicated the law, right? He passed it on. Uh, but it was, uh, it was God that actually gives the law and God is not just the law giver, but he's also the judge of the law. And so when we find ourselves passing judgment, we condemn, we say, you are no longer Christian. You are no longer, you are outside of the faith. You are not acting like the Christian I want you to act like. This is where we actually condemn. We pass judgment, we judge. And this is not always something that is so explicit, but sometimes it's something that's implicit. And we do this all the time with each other, at least in our minds, where we look at someone living their Christian life and we're just like, man, you're just not there. Why aren't you X? Why aren't you at this point? Why aren't you? But it's God that actually judges them on that, isn't it? So it's not up to you to actually tell someone how far they should be along in their sanctification process, is it? It's not up to us to actually make those determinations. It's actually up to God. And the problem is when we start making those judgment calls, when we start making those determinations for someone else that God is working with, what we are doing is we are setting ourselves judge over their lives. And if we do so, then we are lawgivers. We are judges of the law. And that's a comfy place to be because if we are judges of the law, we don't have to do the law anymore, right? Because we make it up. We make the law. We are the standard. We don't have to follow it anymore because we just are it. And that, that's, the, that's a jump that, that, uh, that James is making here is that when you judge other people, uh, when you are making these condemnations, when you are uh, seeking to actually give law to someone else, what you do is you set yourself up as your own judge for your own law and therefore you don't have to follow it. However, if we find ourselves in this humility that God has given to us, um, that, uh, that also imparts grace to us. If we find ourselves in those situations, he says, uh, this is where uh, you become doers of the law. 
And there's this, there's this warning at the end where it says, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you judging your neighbor? This is, this is a stark warning and he just, he just leaves it hanging out there, right? So many times James, he gives these rhetorical questions and then he kind of helps you along, but not this time. He wants you uncomfortable here and it should be uncomfortable. Who are you judging your neighbor? Are you some kind of lawgiver? Are you the judge? And if we find ourselves judging, then that's, that's evidence that we aren't doing. What if the focus isn't judging on others or making sure that others measure up to the standard that you've set for them? What if the focus is Christ? What if that's your job? What if your job is to know Christ and Christ crucified? What if it's your job to actually draw yourself to God so that he draws near to you? What if it's your job to resist the devil and so that he then flees from you? What if it's your job to cleanse your hands, sinner? What if it's your job to purify your hearts? You guys see what what James is getting at here. When we judge other people, we we shift focus off ourselves and, uh, and off of what we should be doing in our relationship with Christ. This is what we're responsible for. And this, this always leaves us uncomfortable because what if like, but I'm just helping, right? Back to the, these motives, right? These motives that we think are so good. I'm just, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to get this person to understand. I'm trying to, I'm trying to help them understand this. I'm trying to put guardrails in their lives to help them live a more Christian life. What if I don't do that? Oh, right? The, and the answer is, yeah, well, yeah. What if you don't do it? Like, that's not up to you. It's not your judgment call, right? And again, we, we find ourselves in this place where we have to ask ourselves, do we have enough faith? Do we trust that God is going to get to them? Do we have enough faith that God is actually going to execute his will in someone else's life totally devoid of you? And, and I think that's what makes this conflict in us. What's what makes this quarreling and this, this strife and this restlessness in us is that we don't actually trust that God can do this without us. He, he needs me to help this person. That's why he put me in their life. What if he doesn't need you though? <laughs> right? He doesn't need us to do these things. And we need to trust that he's going to do this. You see how this entire passage is just over and over and over. We need to ask ourselves, can we trust that God is going to give us uh, these good things? Can we trust that God is actually going to exalt us when we've brought ourselves low? Can we trust that God is actually gonna take care of other people uh, even though we're not the judge? Can we trust that God is going to execute his plans? And the answer is you should trust. This requires faith. Right? This requires faith and so that we just lean into the goodness of God. We lean into who he is and what he's offering to all of us. And when we lean into that, we can focus more clearly on our relationship with Christ. We can focus more clearly on the things that God has given to us. We can, we can give our full attention to this, this ability to humble ourselves, right? We can give ourselves over to God. And so that as he's humbling ourselves, as he's sanctifying us, he then gives us more grace, And there's just one more passage I really want to highlight. And I, I, I love this passage and it really kind of sends it home. It's Hebrews 11, 32, 40. And it says, and what more shall I say? 
For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the, fi- the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. For others experienced mocking and flogging and further chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. They were tempted and they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskin and goatskin, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, people of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts on mountains and sheltering in caves and holes in the ground. And all of these have gained approval through their faith. They did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us so that apart from us, they would not be made perfect. What we need to recognize and what James is getting at here is that God has given us something better. He's given us this better life. He's given us this better option. He's given us better motives. He's given us a better life. And sometimes that looks opposite to what we should expect. It's almost like the wisdom of God seems like foolishness to us. And so this this better life, it looks like when God doesn't answer your prayers, we just have faith that he knows what he's doing and we thank him for it. What, what it, it just looks like we just trust that when we humble ourselves, when we're mourning and weeping and, and we're turning our laughter into mourning, when we're, when we're bringing ourselves so low, we just trust that God is going to exalt us because he has something better for us. When we feel this urge inside of us to judge other people and help them in the way that we think is going to be helpful, right? And we, we feel that urge and we reject it. And we, we allow God to be judge in their lives. We allow God to do the work that he has set out to do. And we resist the devil in this way where we resist being a judge or lawgiver ourselves. We have to trust that God has given us something better. And that something better is Christ. It's Christ more fully. It's knowing Christ better. It's leaning into who he is and the grace that he has given to us. And it's through this grace that we actually know God more and we find ourselves more humbled. And then in this act of humbling ourselves, we receive more grace. We know our Christ better. We're drawn closer to him. And as we draw closer to him, he draws closer to us. And that draws us closer to him. You see how this this doesn't stop until we get to this new heaven, new earth. This doesn't stop until everything is reconciled. This doesn't stop until we get to know our Christ uh, completely unveiled. This is what's better for us. This is the something better that God has provided. This is the way that we actually get to Christ and we actually get to this humility. We get to this friendship of God. We get to it by trusting and having faith that he has given you something better. And if we believe that, if we lean into that, we don't need the world to give us anything. And the world just starts fading away. If we truly believe that we have everything in Christ, there's nothing left to covet. There's nothing left to envy. 
There's nothing left to judge. You see how everything falls away when we know and we lean into our Christ. So as we go throughout this week, I really want us to, uh, to just focus on that. Just focus on leaning into Christ. Try, try just try to, to stop thinking about what else is happening. Try to stop thinking about, uh, yeah, like election stuff, right? This is a great example. We, we fight and we quarrel inside of it. We just, we're so restless about it. But what if God has something better for us? We don't need to envy after these, uh, these, um, these election results. So as we go throughout this week, when you find yourself distracted, when you find yourself uh, and your attention is being pulled towards something, uh, just ask yourself, but why not Christ? How can I lean into Christ here? How, how can I know Christ better in this situation? How can Christ illuminate this situation? And when we just bathe our life in this question, when we bathe our life in knowing Christ, when we bathe our life in this something better, we end up looking like these people that, was just, that were just talked about in the book of Hebrews. We end up looking like people that receive grace and sometimes receive uh, mistreatment. And yet their faith was perfected and yet their faith was given them something more. Even though their promises weren't received, they, they knew that there was something better. And when we live a life like this, imagine an entire church living like this. This is how we reach an unsaved world. This is how we shine the brighter. So as we go throughout this week, like I said, just, just focus on Christ, lean into Christ and ask yourself, how can I learn more about Christ in this situation? Instead of being so focused on something of this world. Let's pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.